Joy of Aquatics. This is the very first episode. My name is Joy Simons and today we are going to be talking about trauma, crying and forceful teaching techniques. That's right, we are just jumping straight in there. Look, we've all seen or heard a story about how people were taught to swim by being thrown in the deep end. And frankly, many of us as teachers are being thrown into the deep end now without training on trauma, psychology, extensive early childhood development, biology, biomechanics, science, social science, and anthropology. We're given a weekend course and then 12 months to figure out the rest that we are supposed to know. But we're being held to high standards and expectations by parents, governing bodies, and most importantly, ourselves. When we aim to teach children swimming and water safety, we do it to save lives. We do it to change lives and make a difference. We certainly don't do it for the pay. I'm a parent and there are many occasions as a parent, I think, oh my goodness, did I just do the right thing by my child? Have I actually created something there? Have I just put them through some sort of trauma that they are going to have to tear that down in their future? Is that something that they're going to have to work around? And when we're teaching swimming, it's the same. We hope that we're doing the right thing by the child and that we're not causing them any trauma. We certainly not something that we go out to do. We don't go out there to create trauma for children. Does is is it just me or does it feel like the industry is very very divided on crying and trauma? For me, it feels like on one side we have teachers saying that it's not okay for parents, sorry, it's not okay for children to cry, certainly not okay for parents to cry in our lessons, we certainly don't want that, but we definitely, you know, there are some teachers out there saying no, children should not be crying in our classes whatsoever and on the other hand, we've got teachers who are doing things that are really traumatic to kids um, in lessons. And I, f- I feel like there, there is that great big divide and there's a whole heap of people, a whole heap of teachers in the middle going, well, hang on, crying's a form of communication. I don't agree with what you're doing there, but I don't agree with going to that extreme there. So where are the boundaries? So I'm, I'm feeling quite divided and I'm I'm wondering if why this is the reason um, our conversations regarding crying have escalated over the past few years um, to become about trauma. So I'm, I have felt the last few years these, these conversations have really, really escalated to, no, 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 children can't cry because now that's trauma. We can't be inflicting trauma on our children to the point where um, governing bodies are releasing um statements and about their stance on forceful teaching techniques and there are some swim schools out there who are being refused um, I guess membership and it's looking like in the future there will be teachers who aren't going to be allowed to be licensed so for me this has been a really big topic and I think there's lots to discuss here and we're going to try and keep it short But it turns out there's actually so much to discuss in here that I've got at least an hour and a half's worth of material. So what I've done is I've actually split this episode into three segments um, and I'm going to be releasing each part over the next three weeks. So this week we are talking to Dr. Daryl Higgins um, and Mel Nelson. Next week we're going to be speaking to a 
Alina Graham and Shannon Townsend. And the following week, we're going to speak to Julie Zancanaro. And I have just confirmed that we're going to be able to speak with Sue Mayo as well. So we're going to build our way through. And hopefully when we come out at that third week, we're going to have some really good um, boundaries and some really good answers and maybe some clarification for people out there that are a little bit confused as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. In order to understand trauma just a little bit more, I have spoken with Professor Daryl Higgins from the Australian Catholic University Institute of Child Protection Studies. So here's what happened when I spoke to uh, Dr. Daryl. Thank you for speaking with me today, Daryl. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just wondering if you can help the listeners understand what is trauma? Look, trauma is a word that uh, people in the mental health profession use to understand um, a really intensely upsetting um, or emotional event that has the potential for long-lasting negative impacts on an individual, so on a child and potentially even into adulthood. Sometimes we can be talking about really serious events such as uh, child sexual abuse and we've seen the Royal Commission that, uh, that we've had in Australia to uncover the the harms relating to uh, abuse of children, but we know that trauma can take a, a number of different forms, um, including emotional trauma. And so we need to think quite broadly around what we, uh, what we think of as potential harm to children and young people. But I think we have to separate out the issue of different causes of trauma versus the different ways in which behaviourally um, it might manifest in children because often children don't have the, the words to be able to describe to us um, their, their um, emotional state. And so it relies on adults, be it uh, parents uh, or, or other carers looking after them, uh, to be able to pick up on, on the distress that they're experiencing, the emotional upset, and to work out that they may have experienced trauma. So does, if, a, if a child is crying then, does that mean they're experiencing trauma? It's uh, really interesting to think about how we can see trauma in every day and certainly signs such as uh, crying um, should be a cause for concern but we also know that it is a very common activity for children and it tells us that some, some, something's not going well and it could be that they don't like the uh, socks that they've been asked by their parents to wear or they don't mm -hmm. want to put on a pair of goggles in order to go for a swim. That doesn't necessarily mean that that activity itself is traumatising and will have lasting impacts but it's it is um, telling us that they're uh, having trouble um, regulating their own emotions um, and so they're experiencing a level of anxiety or distress and that might be quite small and it might be about a very everyday event or it might be something much more significant and it's really hard for adults to be able to automatically discern which of those two things it might be. Okay, all right. So. How would a swimming teacher then know if a child was having or experiencing a traumatic event? What signs should we be looking out for? 
I think that adults who have a care responsibility for children, be it a parent or be it a, a swim teacher or uh, somebody else who's uh, uh, looking after the the, uh, the care of a, of a child, needs to be attuned to what is um, the normal ways in which uh, that particular child expresses emotion and is able to self-regulate. Um, and so a child who's uh, experiencing um, the particular activity, so if we're talking about a, uh, a swim class, and they're, they're normally happy and uh, well adjusted to the activities and participating and then for some reason experiences a, a level of distress about a particular activity, that could be a, a sign that something's not going well. And it might be that they fear that they're not going to be able to complete the activity or that they have had an unpleasant experience as a result of engaging in a previous activity um, or it's just simply the fear of the unknown. And so that means that we need to be actually focusing our attention on the child and asking them about what's going on. And I think that's one of the steps that as adults we often forget to do because we are so cognitive and used to using language, we often forget that children will actually need some prompting and some careful attention in order to understand what's going on and what sits behind the behavioural expression of their anxiety or their distress. Yeah. So swimming teachers and parents really need to be working closely together. That's right. And just because a child might want to um, sit out on a particular activity doesn't mean that it can't be reintroduced into the future or they can't be slowly adjusted to uh, taking that next step. Because, of course, that's part of normal human development is to actually encounter challenges and to um, uh, be able to move through sometimes, um, you know, difficult uh, and new environments that do create a, a level of stress. The issue is that children don't have um, as much kind of cognitive resources to sit behind that as we do. And yet if we think of ourselves as adults and the kind of anxiety that we might have about um, attending a, a job interview or, you know, when we first went for our driver's licence or something like that, um, yeah. you know, there's high levels of anxiety and yet it's very easy for us to um, forget that because we still have a fairly well-developed self-regulation system where we can kind of talk through in our heads it's okay if I don't do it this time you know there'll be another opportunity or it doesn't yeah. mean that I'm a complete failure I can have another go and the reason why we're able to do that is because hopefully we've had enough positive experiences in our life of trying something maybe it didn't work but people got alongside us and said great job Daryl for you know for having a go at that great that you put your toe in the water you know even though you really wanted me to put my head under the water and swim left <laughs> but I got rewarded positively for you know putting my toe in the water it might begin with one toe and then it might be two and then it might be five etc and so I think that uh, when you see a skilled um, teacher or educator working with a child that they're able to understand where's the comfort zone um, that that child is at and what's the appropriate way in which they can stretch that boundary just that little bit without inducing trauma or a, a level of distress that can't be managed by that child. Yeah, okay. All right, so a little bit of stress is natural and normal. I guess without stress, we're not going to learn or we're not going to change. Um, as, as long as um, children are encouraged through that, would you, would you say that's, that's a fair... A fair call? 
Absolutely. And it's, yeah. it's a little bit like the, the physical issues of how we build muscle, that we have tiny, tiny little bits of stress. You know, we actually tear our little muscles and then they repair. Uh, and that's how we build up physical muscles. And it's almost the same when we're talking about learning a new skill in that emotional sense that it's about being able to be pushed just that tiny little bit, but in a safe way. Um, so we don't go breaking our leg in order to build muscle. We need to be able to do it within the limits of our physical capacity. And that's exactly the same with emotions. We need to be able to encounter our um, external environment in a way that is emotionally safe, um, that the challenges that are provided are done in an emotionally safe space. Yes, for sure. All right. Well, what do you think we should know about trauma in children in terms of brain development and long-term effects of trauma? Do you think there's anything specific that swimming teachers should really know and understand about trauma before we carry on teaching? I think that it's important for swimming teachers, as along with all other um, early childhood um, educators, to be aware that um, children will come with their own experiences. And so we don't know when we're challenging a child with a particular activity, um, what their prior experience is with, um, you know, being supported in order to undertake new challenges. So we just have to deal with what's there on the surface. And that means we need to be very well attuned to um, seeing how children react when set with a task. You know, are they um, able to self-regulate and deal with the anxiety that uh, a new task or a new challenge might create? And how do we need to gently ease them into, uh, into engaging in that and positively reward and build up that kind of bank of um, sense of, of security and of um, positive um, achievement that uh, undertaking uh, an exercise such as a, a, a physical challenge that um, engaging in any type of sport or physical activity provides for children and young people. So in that broad sense, I think that, um, uh, that all teachers need to be attuned to the possibility of prior trauma, which might mean that they need to adjust their um, supports and be really looking out for those signs of self-regulation in a child um, going wrong and being able to pull back and provide more support and not um, push the child beyond their, their limits so that they're stretching beyond that breaking point. Um, but to also understand that the way in which they teach doesn't in and of itself induce anxiety because it's um, pushing them too quickly um, and not providing the level of, uh, of support that that young person needs. Mm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate your time, Daryl, and um, hopefully uh, what we talk about today is, is going to make the difference in not just some teachers' lives but also some children's. So thank Absolutely. you. I think Dr. Darrell has made some really good points there. Um, crying doesn't always mean trauma. It's a sign of distress and that help is required. He's also said that we need small amounts of stress to produce change, to learn. And as long as we aren't pushing too far emotionally and we know the kids' limits, then we should be okay. Um, parents should also know the limits and we need we do really need to be working with the parents to understand especially if they're a new student what that cry actually means so my take on what 
um, Dr. Darrell has just said is that if we're encouraging and supporting children through the stresses that we do place on them when they are learning, we are not traumatizing children. So what is it that does actually traumatize kids? To find out the answer to this question, I have rounded up four amazing women from our industry in Australia, and I have discussed trauma, crying, and forceful teaching with each of them. Now, many of these conversations have been over one hour long, and I've actually had to cut them down to approximately 15 minutes each. Now, that was a mammoth task, and I will not be doing that again. So needless to say, we will have a different format for the next episode. Um, First up... I am speaking with Mel Nelson. Now, Mel runs an infant aquatic survival float program um, in Western Australia in Bustleton. Now, she does run some other programs, but I'll let her talk to you about those. Um, Mel is actually facing questions from one Australian governing body as to whether or not um, she should be able to associate with them because she does run a swim school with an infant aquatic survival program. Now, this is the reason that I really wanted to speak to Mel today. I wanted to hear from her how she deals with children that are crying in her classes. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I know you and I have had many conversations um, before about crying and trauma and also um, survival swimming. So can you actually just uh, let people know or let the listeners know what you do at your swim school? Yeah, sure. I actually do the Infant Aquatic Survival uh, Skills Program, which I I learned in America. And I also teach Oswim Stages and Strokes and uh, infant swimming under the Oswim or Royal Life Endorsed Program also. So we do a multitude of programs at the swim school. Fantastic. All right. Well, what is your position on crying? If a child's crying, um, do you believe that's forceful teaching? Look, my view, it's very simple. We look at crying as the types. We have three different options. We consider that we've taken the child from the parent into a stranger's arms, a massive body of water. Some cry, some don't. Um, The second, I guess, we're asking the child to do something that they haven't done before, unsure of, or they're just plain don't want to do it. You know, kids have bad days as well as adults. And the third one, I guess, is, is more the genuine fear or anxiety. It's a different type of cry. Their body actions are different. And... In those cases, we work differently with that child. We, we cater for their anxiety and transition them to make it a more comfortable lesson for them. It may take the program a little bit longer, but we certainly make adaptations for it. So is it traumatic? Uh, definitely not. I think my view on, on swimming lessons, again, very simple. It's an adjustment like every other life skill or lesson or program they go to do. Um, there's a process to obtain that skill. Um, some have no issues with it and others, well, you know, they, they have bad days. Um, I, I guess for me, in my experience, I had a parent that said to me once, I would rather hear them cry whilst learning to swim or never hear them cry again because they've never learnt the skill and drowned. And that really, for me, cemented why I teach swimming. I guess that's a, a big thing for me. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like there's you've sort of classified your crying into three different things, a bit of 
separation anxiety from the parents. Um, yes. A bit of, I don't want to do it. And then there's that fearful crying. And when when the kids cry um, for any yes. of those reasons, what's, what's your process? Well, I don't believe that uh, it's forceful teaching to start with. And yep. we just we just adjust our lessons appropriately. You know, if it is that they just don't want to do it, then we incorporate some, some more play into our lessons and get them comfortable because they change their mind very, very quickly. Kids are amazingly resilient and extremely adaptable. And for those kids that are really struggling with the anxiety and the fear, we have a separate section in the pool where we have specific toys and distraction things. Uh, you know, we have kites hanging from the roof. So but even if they're not doing a lesson per se, they're getting comfortable in the water and they're getting that familiarisation and awareness. So um, for me, it, it's definitely don't stop. It, it's about getting them comfortable in the water and and showing them that there is a different side to being fearful and being anxious in the water. And I think that's very, very important. If I feel if parents stopped every time a child cried at something, um, you know, there, there would be a, a lot of kids that never did any type of, of swimming or sport or, you know, life lesson that was important for them to learn. Yeah. All right. So you, you don't pull them out, I guess is what you're no. saying, but work with them in that lesson and adjust your lesson to cater for whatever the reason of their crying is. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay. And that that to me makes sense. I guess my next question too is, do you have a policy on crying? This is a really interesting question. I have 20 years background in HR and safety, so policies were my lifeline. Now, a crime policy, no. I would never, ever implement one at my swim school. A um, couple of different reasons. Children are children. They are never, ever, ever the same. You could not create one policy to cover all children. It would be completely impo impossible. And, and I think for those that have created the policy, I'd really be intrigued to see how they're managing that. Because if they're not adhering to their policy, or if they are adhering to their policy, they'd be getting children out every single week. Even the kids that love lessons and look forward to going, you still get the occasional week where they're tired or they've had a bad day or... You know, it, it would be, honestly, very difficult to adhere to. So, no, I, I couldn't put a policy together. All right. So do you think that um, there's something missing from the industry or do you think there's anything that we can implement in the industry so that we're all on the same page? Oh, look, honestly, I think a bit more open-mindedness and common sense needs to be implemented, and I know that's very, very difficult to do. Um I believe the industry is trying to categorise kids too much, put them in a in a box. Uh, it, it's not black and white. A lot of kids are very different. Um, I also believe that the group sizes that some of these kids are learning to swim in is probably causing a lot more issues than it is assisting. And that's... You know, in respect to trauma, that's creating their anxiety or their fear. You know, they're getting knocked off the platform or they're, they're being, 
spending five minutes out of a half an hour lesson actually doing swimming because there's too many kids in the class and there's not enough for instructors. And I guess I'm leaning more towards the intern swimming or the Department of Education swimming that we have here. I'm using as an example. Um, you know, stage ones, I've got 10 to 12 kids in a class. That's that's near on impossible to gain any progression and give them the comfort that they need. So I think that's certainly more open-mindedness and common sense. Can yeah. we still run a survival swimming program without traumatising our students? The infant aquatic survival program that I run is extremely nurturing. It's using the child's behavioural uh, and emotional as well as their mum memory muscle uh, management and it is extremely progressive and it's not traumatizing at all. You are monitoring what their breath control, you are making sure that they are kicking correctly. Everything that you would do in a normal swimming lesson, you are doing. It's just more intense because you're one-on-one -on -one and the lessons are four times a week rather than once a week. So I think definitely we can run these and it's certainly not traumatic. What's better than having our children be able to survive and be safe and in a nurturing environment? So we can definitely incorporate it into our programs. There's a lot of swimming teachers out there that don't agree with forced submersions and, well, none of us, I, I believe, should really be forcing a submersion. Um, but then there's also being underwater on the back. Um, do you have any, I guess, any comments that you want to make around those those things? Look, I don't agree with the uh, on your back being submerged. I do not agree with that at all. Um, and in the survival program, that's certainly not the way that it's taught. It is taught to roll from swimming on your front when you need air to roll over onto your back. So there's no submersion in that part at all on your back. Um, I do believe, though, that the consistency is very important. And I think sometimes that once-a-week lesson from an infant perspective is not giving them the true basis to... Um, continue that foundation or to continue the progression that they need. So, um, again, that's where I've found that the survival program is amazing because their muscle memory and their behavioural management is, is monitored over those four days and the progression is truly amazing. And the controlled breathing is certainly taught in the first three lessons. Uh, it they hold their breath instantly. They know exactly what the cue is and I don't see the need for there to be forced submersions as such. That's fantastic because I know there's definitely a lot of misconception about um, aquatic survival lessons. Um, yes. And Val and I went to England a couple of years ago to actually go and see the International Swimming Academy where they, they run um, a survival program as well. And we didn't see any signs of trauma. I didn't see any children um, underwater on their back where they weren't um, coping. So the older kids that were rolling in full clothes, there was a bit of... Um, submersion on their back but they were adjusting and they were coping and they were getting to where they needed to be correct yeah yeah, yeah. I so there is any trauma in young kids at all 
No. And the best part about that program that you mentioned then where they're being tipped fully clothed is when you look at the number of children, and I'm sure it's not recorded anywhere, but when you think about the amount of children that are drowning, they don't go out in their bathers and drown. They go fully clothed. And these children, after the program is, is near its completion, in the last week, they're taught to actually fully roll over from a submersion. So, yes, they are tipped from a mat or tipped over in a flip as such, I suppose you'd call it, um, fully clothed. And they turn over onto their back with jackets, jumpers, shoes, so they, and, and a full uh, dry nappy. So the weight involved is tremendous for a little child. Fantastic. Now, the good, the things that I've seen um, have been fantastic, but I do know there's lots of misconception out there. And I think it's because some of the videos that we have seen as teachers have been not good. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the reasons Val and I decided we want to go and see the International Swimming Academy. Um, it's yeah. one of the reasons I guess I've reached out to you. Um, and because I, I do think we're only seeing the worst of the worst. I don't think we're seeing the good parts around the program. So, um, interesting to see how the governing bodies progress from here. I think I'd be really interested in seeing some industry change. I think, and I'm talking about Australia here, I'm not talking about the States because when I spent three months over there teaching, they have a phenomenally wide open view for things. They're extremely objective. I, I don't, you know, I love living in Australia and I love teaching, but I don't believe that our industry um, has a good look at other programs and embraces the change. I feel that they dismiss a lot of the programs or part of the programs uh, because they don't offer them and they can't license them. I think also um, because the industry has seen the worst of the worst, it's very easy to go no. And we know there are teachers out there who maybe don't have the professional development or the training um, that's yeah. necessary to understand that they are leaving kids too long in the water. So I can see both sides of the fence, but I do yeah. think there does need to be more investigation before governing bodies can say, look, we're not going to let you um, register as this type of swim school or we're not going to let you be licensed. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'd love and be happy to assist in any investigation that they want to do. I think this yeah. is the way the industry is trying to raise the standards of swimming teachers. And I, I'm behind that, but at the same time, I don't want to see good people running great programs who aren't involved with that type of stuff lose out in yeah. All right. Well, Mel, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope everything is going well with your program and I look forward to speaking with you in the future. No worries. Thanks very much, Joy. My pleasure. If you'd like to know more about Mel's programming, you can find her online at melsaqua.com.au. I think we've heard some really good points today from Dr. Darrell and also Mel. Um, and I just wanted to recap on some of those. And uh, the big one that stands out for me is acknowledging the child's experience and that everyone brings their own baggage to the table. We quite often don't know what's happened with kids before they've come into the lesson and we need to be mindful of those experiences as we are teaching. Um, 
no one wants a child to drown, but does the end justify the means? So it's a really good um, talking point right there. And that's really what this whole thing is about. So Mel's classifications around crying, they make sense to me. They really do. And I love how how she said she adjusts her lessons when kids cry. And depending on the type of cry depends on how we're going to adjust our lessons. And I think a lot of us do that intuitively already. Um, Mel brought up the point around consistency and this is something that Laurie Lawrence has said a number of times and I think if you speak to anyone in the industry, we all talk about consistency. One lesson a week for half an hour, it really doesn't cut it. Um, Alina Graham, who I'm going to speak with um, in next week's episode, um, Alina has always said it takes seven years to learn to walk, but we practice walking all the time. We know when we're in the cot and we stand up and we sit down, and when I say we, I'm talking about us as humans, um, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, it, it takes a lot of practice to learn to walk and it's a mature walking pattern by the age of seven. So I can hold on to my drink, talk to the person next to me and not run into the pole while I'm walking along. And there are some adults that struggle with that. So um, consistency is really a big thing. So I guess the challenge for us on consistency is how can we implement that better into our programs? Can we change up the way we offer swimming lessons to provide more than one or two lessons a week? That's a challenge. That's a challenge for us as an industry. I know a lot of swim schools out there are set in the whole one lesson a week for 30 minutes and some people offer um, discounts if they're booked in for a second week but how do we push beyond that? How do we get more um, practice time and more time that the kids are actually in our facilities? Mel also highlights another thing about not stopping lessons. Yes, stop and have a chat and acknowledge why the kids are crying but build that relationship with the parents and don't stop lessons and that's what she's really saying don't stop swimming lessons for me that highlights a place where swimming teachers need a lot of training in how do we talk to parents how do we support our parents and how do we build better relationships and that's the thing that I want to really really focus on over the next um, 12 months is how how can we align expectations on and around swimming lessons between parents and teachers. Um, that, that for me is something that I'm really, really passionate about. I know I spoke to Mel and asked Mel about a policy around crying and she's like, no, definitely not. You can't apply one policy to every student. And I've got, I've got a really good story about the Federal Aviation Administration in the USA when the 9-11 attacks occurred or after the 9-11 attacks occurred, they realised that they had no policy surrounding how do they actually ground all the planes flying over America at once? How do they do that? And they looked at the potential of actually putting a policy into place to make that easier. So there was something that air traffic controllers could go to to guide them. And when they looked into it further, they actually realised that this is a exceptionally 
rare circumstance and how can we write a policy around that? And they realised that it was the strength of the relationships between the air traffic controllers that actually saved the day, that helped get all of those planes on the ground. It was the air traffic controllers calling the friends that they knew at other airports that helped bring those planes down safely. So the Federal Aviation Administration didn't put a policy in regarding how to ground all the planes. What they did was they created ways to strengthen relationships between air traffic controllers. And I think that is such a good example of why policies, why sometimes policies shouldn't be written. In saying that though, Mel has identified three types of crying. What's stopping us from writing some guidelines around how we deal with crying in those situations? Behaviour is complex. Coming at people's behaviours and trying to apply one set of rules quite often doesn't work. It is why we have a justice system. It's why we have the legal system. It's why we have judges... That, that's why all of that stuff occurs. One set of rules doesn't always exist for every child. So I completely understand where Mel is coming from. Look, there's so much to discuss here. Um, so much to talk about. I've actually had to chop this one episode that was an hour and 20 minutes long down into three smaller episodes. So next week, we will be talking to Alina Graham and Shannon Townsend on their views. And the following week, we will be talking to Julie Zancanaro, and I have just confirmed today that I'm going to get a chance to speak with Sue Mayo as well, which is really, really exciting. So stay tuned over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to slowly be releasing these out to everyone. Um, Please remember, put on your hats so that we can ask ourselves when we're teaching, is it helpful? Are we advocating for the child at that point in time and are we causing trauma? So this, this is my little mantra around trauma. Be a hero, wear a hat. Is it helpful? Are we advocating for the student right now and are we causing trauma? So when you're faced with a child that's crying at that time, be a hero, wear your hat. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of The Joy of Aquatics. This first episode, again, has been on trauma, forceful teaching techniques um, and crying. And next week, we're going to carry on that conversation with Alina Graham and Shannon Townsend. So stay tuned. I hope you've enjoyed this first session. (laughs) 